0: The Colorado Behavioral Health and Wellness Summit brought clinicians, educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders in the field of behavioral health together at the University of Denver. The summit was a collaboration between the Mental Health Center of Denver, the University of Denver, and Envision You, who were gracious enough to invite the Emergency Medical Minute to record the event and share it with you all. Here is Dr. Tracy Vozar, the director of the Infant and Early Childhood Mental Health Specialty at the University of Denver Graduate School for Professional
1: Psychology, with Dr. Jennifer Tippett, the director of the Substance Use Disorder Specialty at the University of Denver's Graduate School for Professional Psychology, with their presentation, Substance Use During the Perinatal Period, Implications for Attachment
0: Relationships, Mental Health, and well-being so we actually had a last minute change to our talk uh, title because we realized what we were focused on is really um, in line with a program that is currently in development within our department that will be telling you more about the expecting well-being program and really what we're covering are the spectrum of perinatal behavioral health disorders including substance use during pregnancy and into the postpartum period so i'm tracy bozar I direct our Infant and Early Childhood Mental Health Specialty within the Graduate School of
1: Professional Psychology. And I'm Jennifer Tippett. I direct our Substance Use Disorder Specialty Program at the Graduate School of Professional Psychology.
0: And it might seem like an odd pairing to have an Infant and Early Childhood person and a Substance Use person doing a lot of work together, but we're going to show you why this is um, rewarding and important work, particularly right now and right here in Colorado. So uh, it's funny because I have a really upbeat personality and I work with babies and young kids and yet I seem to continually really depress people and bring them down. So I apologize for that straight out the gate, but we're going to start out by talking a little bit about maternal mortality, which is one of the reasons that our current work is so important. Um, Maternal mortality is defined as death of a pregnant or postpartum person within that 21-month period that surrounds pregnancy and the year following childbirth. Um, What we know is that in Colorado, 80% of those deaths are preventable. So that's a strikingly high number of preventable deaths of new mothers. The primary causes, and so the reason that we're focused in this area, are behavioral health conditions, including substance use disorders and mental health difficulties, which are often comorbid, of course. Um, Other causes you can see here. And greater than 85% of these cases of mortality are not pregnancy-related. So it's not as though we have pregnant and postpartum folks primarily dying due to pregnancy-related health concerns Instead, it's these other concerns and difficulties that are driving the mortality rates. And that's data for here in Colorado. When we've surveyed folks in Colorado, and this is CDPHE data from 2018, so very recent, regarding the past three months um, during their pregnancy, 14% reported using alcohol. And I want to highlight reported right? Because these are rates that um, pregnant folks were willing to endorse their use during the past three months. Our guess would be that it's likely higher, right? Um, 7% endorsed reported smoking cigarettes and 8% marijuana. The reasons for marijuana use were um, interesting to me. Um, There's been kind of an uptick in folks thinking that marijuana is safe to be used during pregnancy for nausea or um, vomiting or other um, concerns during pregnancy, particularly in the first trimester that many experience. And um, it's not the case. We actually know that there are concerns for use of marijuana during pregnancy. Um, But it's gotten kind of a reputation for being okay during this time period. Um, So many folks said they were using it to relieve nausea and vomiting um, or for fun and recreation, thinking possibly that it's safe. Um, Others to relieve anxiety or stress. So, of course, that's very significant, right? Because we'd like for them to be turning to other um, healthier forms of treatment for anxiety and stress. Um, Others to help sleep and some for treatments of chronic conditions, possibly medical or um, other mental health conditions. When surveyed regarding prescription pain relievers, um, around 4% reported use. 58% reported a professional spoke with them about the risks of using these <coughs> prescription pain relievers during pregnancy. So notice that's, I was surprised at that rate. I thought that was low. I'd like to see a higher rate of healthcare workers talking to pregnant folks about prescription pain reliever used during pregnancy and some of the risks that can be associated with that for the developing newborn. 11% reported receiving scripts from more than one physician, also notable. And 7% reported receiving prescription <coughs> pain relievers during pregnancy from a friend or family member, so going outside of um, a prescriber.
1: Um, I might say one thing really fast too. Um, although we've talked about alcohol and cannabis and opioids during pregnancy, we also have a sharp uptick in methamphetamine use in pregnancy. Um, it kind of, kind of got pushed out of the limelight, but since about 2015, we've seen that really, really rising as well. Um, so just have that. And two in Colorado and. So, yeah across um, Colorado especially meth is our biggest um, used drug in Colorado mm-hmm. more than opioids actually
0: which it um, is interesting because with the opioid epidemic mm-hmm. meth is
1: really getting it really um, kind of, well, less you, attention you can't sue Jesse Pinkman right like you're not gonna sue the dude in the trailer making the meth people, right you can sue Johnson and Johnson and that's pretty good headlines um, that's right so there's a lot of like rant, rant. but what happens is a lot of people start using either meth or opioids and then pair them together to either come down or go up and so that also really happens a lot. Um, and as far as treatment during pregnancy, one of the biggest things that has come along that's been really helpful is our medication-assisted therapies. So our opioid agonists and um, partial agonists that sort of bind to that receptor and disallow the same effect. Um, so that kind of creates for the um, pregnant woman or you know, directly postpartum or anyone who's using it really some of the effect, it's less painful. So this is methadone, suboxone, some of those things that you might have heard about just sort of colloquially. Um, That's what they do. Um, And studies kind of show with the World Health Organization that this does decrease illicit use. We know that it's really helpful in places like inpatient rehab clinics, um, but just generally out in the world reduces use um, and minimize the in utero withdrawal of the fetus as well. So it kind of is a gentle step down for both of them. Um, unfortunately, there's no medications to use for meth, which is also really difficult to come off of during pregnancy. So the medication assisted treatment, when you hear that sort of floating around, oh, we'll just do meth treatment or um, that way, it really is specific to opioids at this point. Um, we also can do medically with, uh, supervised withdrawal, which can be really tough for people. Um, and that really is just setting them up with someone who is going to watch as they come off of the drug. Physiologically, that makes a lot of sense and that sounds good. Psychologically, it can be a little rougher um, because a lot of those cravings start to kick in in like week one. And if we don't have someone who has really good insurance and is like fully wrapped around, that gets pretty hard to manage. Our other options are behavioral therapy or residential treatment programs. Those are few and far between. I don't know if any of you have any familiarity, but pregnant women who use drugs, Most programs are like, absolutely not. Like, we're not touching that, right? Um, So, it's really hard to find beds, really hard to find programs. But we know from the research and the literature that this works. That putting women in um, like therapeutic communities, we call them TCs, um, or other wraparound programs that provide detox and then continued support really does seem to give us the best outcomes um, long term. That being said, what the research really said is that uh, women need to be there for about six months to see real gain. Um, if you can get any clean time, that's great, especially in that first trimester uh, when the fetus is especially vulnerable to, to, to um, teratogens. But any you know six months really is kind of our our goal. Um, other programs have played with doing monthly ultrasounds, and that's more to hit that psychological intrinsic. Motivation and reward. So, when we think about substance use, right, it's a disorder of pleasure and reward, but also of your executive functioning. So, your ability to plan, your ability to anticipate consequences, your ability to uh, appreciate gains that you've made and hold those above any other, you know, sort of anything that's salient um, stimuli, which we would in this case say is the drug. So, the idea behind monthly ultrasounds is to sort of help boost that. Um, executive functioning properties. And so, hey, you can see your baby once a month. Remember this. Listen to that heartbeat. Really think about why you're doing this kind of thing um, in order to bolster that um, executive uh, decision-making function in women. In connection and early attachment with the developing baby, which we're going to talk about more in just a minute. Oh, attachment becomes really important, yeah. Yep. That's why we do this together. That's, yeah. yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So,
0: um, Folks worry quite a bit about the use of medication-assisted therapy for um, pregnant folks. One of the things that gets brought up is neonatal abstinence syndrome. Don't we just want them to quit cold turkey? Well, it's interesting. um, The quitting cold turkey idea is, uh, of course, fraught with difficulties and does not work well for (coughs) many, many individuals, um, perhaps most. And um, one of the reasons that we have that idea of treatment with a pregnant and postpartum population is this thought around neonatal abstinence syndrome, um, which is when maternal opioid use during pregnancy can result in neonatal abstinence syndrome, or also known as neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome, in the infant. Um, It's a group of conditions. And what you see are symptoms in the infant, like tremors, convulsions, twitching. You can see low muscle tone. Um, These babies are often fussy. There's excessive crying. Um, High-pitched cry is one of the things that babies who are withdrawing from opioids are are known for on the NICU floor. Um, They can also experience low birth weight, but then also poor feeding because of a um, difficulty with the sucking reflex and um, slow weight gain. So they're already born kind of um, lighter than we would like them to be. And then they're also having difficulties gaining weight. They can have breathing problems um, and symptoms like fever, sweating, blotchy skin. They can also have difficulties sleeping, but be tired all the time. Um, and then also GI distress and some symptoms of like cold-like symptoms like sneezing and stuffiness. Um, we worry that um, using medically assisted therapy can um, potentially result in babies experiencing similar symptoms or experiencing neonatal abstinence syndrome. However, the rates of babies that experience NAS following MAT are far lower than the rates of babies who are exposed to opioids, and so. You're you're hoping, actually, that parents are engaging in MAT to get off the substances over the course of the pregnancy. But even if they remain on uh, MAT throughout the pregnancy, the risk to the baby of NAS is lessened, and the symptoms tend to be less severe. So it's a step down in severity and also likelihood of experience of neonatal
1: abstinence syndrome. And we see even less of that in uh, suboxone versus methadone. Mm -hmm. which is why we're sort of turning a little bit more to Suboxone in these cases.
0: Yep, and that's why it's so important to be working with perinatal psychiatrists who have a really good understanding of which drugs are the best choice and what's going to be the best outcome for keeping not only mom but also baby in mind, which is is so important. Um, We have seen increases in cases in Colorado, um, up 120% from 2011 to 2016 of neonatal abstinence syndrome. And um, we saw 287 infants, to give you a sense of the number, um, born with NAS according to the NAS rating scales. Um, So this is not a disease where you can say, based on um, a lab test or something along those lines, yes, they have it, no, they don't. Instead, it's looking at this list of symptoms and then basically um, hitting a threshold on a screening tool for NAS. Um, that said, because of the type of symptoms that are seen, it is a pretty specific set of symptoms, and for many babies you can kind of figure it out based on observation data associated with the screen. Do
1: they connect it to the parent endorsement of use? Or...
0: So, of course, some parents do endorse use, and others do not. Uh-huh. And then you can still, of course, see the same symptom profile, um, often there are tests that are done through um, urinalysis and through the meconium that can suggest whether the infant had um, exposure to substances and which substances. Um, so that's the other test that can be used. Um, sometimes, babies born outside of the hospital, for example, we might not have access to that as easily. Um, so the screening tool tends to be the way that the diagnosis
1: is made but in addition to other tests that are possible. The cry is one of the biggest giveaways. That's like, nice. there is no... And if the you, shaking. The shaking and the cry. Yeah. is like, you, you can recognize it a mile away once you've heard it.
0: Yeah. Um, <clears throat> neonatal abstinence syndrome is associated with lengthy and um, additional NICU stays. So babies that come out of the NICU, they do sometimes return, especially those who have experienced NAS. They are at risk, as I mentioned, for low birth weight, but also jaundice and seizures. And they are at risk for sudden infant death syndrome. (coughs) Possible long-term effects, and these are less well known or studied, but we have seen um, connections to, potential developmental delays, behavioral and learning issues later on, speech and language problems, sleep issues. Um, They start out having difficulty with sleep, and then sleep can continue to be a difficulty. Ear infections and also vision issues. Um, so, if you can for a moment kind of place in mind an, a newborn infant, which how many parents do I have in the room? Okay, so newborns, easy to manage on the best of days. Not so much. She's like, right? That's a false oh statement. Right. <laughs> not so much. No. Newborns who are experiencing this set of symptoms wow, that would be difficult to manage, right? Um, Often when they're withdrawing, they are within the NICU setting, and so there is support. But um, now imagine that you're a parent who's trying to withdraw from substances yourself and trying to get clean for your baby. Mm -hmm. And you're faced with a baby that has sleep issues, that has a a particularly high-pitched cry, is fussy, irritable, difficult to soothe. and you're trying to get off the substances that you've used to regulate yourself, and you're trying to regulate a difficult infant, a difficult to soothe infant who is also withdrawing from substances that um, are directly, that, that you having taken the substances yourself, you are directly responsible for the infant's set of symptoms. So imagine mm-hmm. placing yourself in a mom's position with, with that newborn mm-hmm. and in that
1: context. This is an incredibly tricky time for someone to try to come off of substances, actually. And just to add, uh, the NICU staff is not always
0: super supportive empathic understanding of parents who have been
1: using substances during pregnancy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your not baby's coming off of meth, we don't feel real sorry for you. Like, look what you've done to this poor little baby, right? But. To add to depending on the staff members. Absolutely. Some, and there's there's been Absolutely. some efforts around education and
0: support and um, a lot of the work I was doing at Tulane and the NICU was with working with staff members to help them think about, you know, what what do you think that parents' life was like mm-hmm. before they got pregnant and during their pregnancy? You know, what do, what do you think they were experiencing? Why do you think they were using substances? Do you think it was easy to come off of those, <laughs> right? So doing some, some work with the staff around fostering empathy and understanding for the parents um, to then try to um, support the relationship between the parent and the child. Mm-hmm. But that's a, um, an uphill struggle right now, for sure. Yeah. So we do know that for babies experiencing NAS, or NAS, there is typically a response to treatment within 5 to 30 days. So, we do see improvement for these babies. Um, it's a mat- multifaceted treatment approach. So, um, we do treat the withdrawal symptoms and the dehydration for the baby in much the same way that we treat them for the mom. Um, of course, different doses. Um, nutrition as well, because we have these babies who are born low birth weight and who are having difficulties gaining weight, we do a lot around increasing caloric consumption. Um, and we do encourage uh, breast milk as well and breastfeeding. There are a variety of calming and soothing strategies that are used in the NICU and that we hope then are also used at home, like breastfeeding, like rooming in with the parents. So, you know, of course, for a parent to feel comfortable rooming in, hopefully they feel welcomed and they feel um, understood by the staff. And so, if there's a difficulty there, that can be problematic. Um, Swaddling is helpful for these babies. Kangaroo care, including which is skin-to-skin contact, and that can be with the mom, it can be with a dad or another caregiver as well. But that skin-to-skin contact between baby and caregiver is so helpful for regulation for babies in general and certainly for babies who are going through treatment. And then um, pacifiers also, that sucking reflex is very helpful. And then we find these babies are um, especially sensitive to bright lights and to loud noises. Unfortunately, NICU environments are often um, very bright and very loud with a lot of um, buzzers going off. And so there have been um, many, many attempts at diminishing the light, particularly above babies' beds or at um, producing shades, other things to change that environment for the baby, and also um, quiet zones where they're trying to bring down the sound stimulation for the infants as well. Um, Mainly, through the education around treatment for NAS and other conditions.
1: Right, so why not just stop, right? So this is the question that we always have for mom, not always, but often comes up when a woman presents to someone and says, hey, I'm pregnant. Also, I'm addicted to X, Y, and Z. And so our response is, well, just stop doing that then, right? That's harmful for your baby, so just don't do it anymore. And historically, we've really kind of focused on that. We've had a lot of educational campaigns, like, hey, if you smoke, that leads to low birth weight, so don't do that anymore, right? And the thought was, if we just tell people that it's hurting their baby, they'll stop doing it. But it turns out it's harder than that. Um, We've also done a lot of shame-based things, so when you come into your OB and you say, hey, I'm also using meth, uh, the, the look of abject horror of how could you do that, right? Um, and fear your baby's gonna be sick, there's no way you're gonna have a healthy pregnancy now, this is a disaster, that sort of thing, and also punishment. So along with the NICU staff who may not be super empathetic, you also have a CPS worker, Child Pro- Protective Services worker, who might also be involved now in talking about taking away your baby, um, especially if this is not your first addicted baby that you have given birth to. It's almost a certainty that uh, that baby will be removed. Um, We focus a lot less on why this behavior is happening, why someone who knows, right? educational campaigns, knows that this is hurting their baby, has seen the look on your face of absolute horror and disgust. They've seen it. They get it. CPS is coming to the hospital. They're scared, but they're still using. And we really don't think about what drives that continued disregard of consequences, so things like trauma. We see a really high uh, level of trauma in this population that has typically been unmet um, and untreated. Underlying mental health issues, so bipolar disorder, um, being one of the big ones, depression, um, anxiety, PTSD, things like that. And then also attachment systems, which we really don't talk a whole lot about but Tracy and I really nerd out about. Um, and it's something that really gets under appreciated in substance use disorder treatment in general, but especially in this population. Because uh, newsflash, pregnancy and postpartum is really stressful, so we had like two moms in here, we're moms, we're here to tell you this is actually really hard, I don't know if any of you have done it before. In other capacities. Um, so just being pregnant and then having this teeny tiny human that you now have to keep alive is really, turns out to be quite difficult, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It increases the likelihood and severity of mental health issues broadly. So you have hormonal changes, which then mess with all of your um, neurotransmitters up here, your serotonin, your dopamine levels. You're not sleeping. You're not eating well because you're exhausted. Um, So it really kind of kicks up those mental health symptoms that we know tend to get kicked up when you're not taking really great care of yourself anyway. not to mention the incredible hormonal ups and downs that happen. Uh, within our societal structure as it sits now, we also have a really decreased level of support. So way back in like ancient times, right? We were all tribes and you'd have a baby and you get tired and you like hand it off to someone and like, I need a break, right? Not anymore. Not even, now you go back to work, right And then you come home and pick up the same baby that was exhausting this morning and is still exhausting tonight, but you just keep doing it. Um, and so we really have kind of a decreased level of societal empathy and understanding when it comes to this period for women. There's also a lot of increased demand. So work might be that. Home might be that. Also, if anyone's ever gotten on Instagram, Facebook, and seen everyone, like, you're so happy and glowing. This is so perfect. My house is clean and my babies are. And you're like, uh, where does that house exist? right? Because it's not mine. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of uh, just increased pressure during this time. Also what happens, which is fun, is an activation of your attachment and auto-regulation patterns. And what I mean by that is the ways that you as a kid learn to attach, get activated now that you've got this kid. Because you've got a template and that's what you know how to do. Also the ways that you've learned to self-soothe and regulate your own system, for better or for worse, are what you fall back on when all of this comes together and your frontal lobe isn't the strongest thing going right now, okay? So you're you're exhausted, you're overwhelmed, you're hormonal, maybe you've got some underlying mental health symptoms, maybe you don't have any support, you fall back on what you know, for better or for worse. Um, and that includes attachment and regulating. So let's talk about that some more. So we know that
0: um, Our attachment systems are activated during times of distress. So what do I mean by that? I'm talking about attachment systems. This is very, as Jen put it, we love to nerd or geek out about stuff like this, but not everyone is an attachment nerd, so let's talk about this a little differently. what I want you to do. Is, is anyone else in an attachment nerds? Sorry to interrupt. Attachment nerds? Anyone? Anyone? No? No. Kind of? No. Kind of? Maybe okay. maybe. Alright. We might get some converts, basically. Yeah, just we're gonna try way. to convert Give us you a couple own. minutes. That's right. <laughs> so what I want you to do is think about the last time you were stressed, having a bad day. All right. Think about the last moment that maybe you felt like, a bit of a panic, something didn't go right. Or you had a minor crisis, like um, car wouldn't start, something along those lines. Okay. Think about, what did you do? For many of us, in a situation like that, where we're stressed or somehow activated, we might think to call someone or text. Right? We might think, ooh, all right, I'm going to call my partner and say oh I need help right now it's having a terrible day right For others we might call a best friend. We might call a parent or a loved one. We also might think I wish I had someone like those people that I could call right now and I don't and I'm angry about that or I feel let down right Those, are what we mean by triggering your attachment system. Stressful times, circumstances, issues in life that cause us to think either I'm gonna reach out to someone that I feel like I can trust or
1: I wish I did have someone I could trust but instead I have to rely on myself. Right, whether that is true or not. So you could actually have a partner or a best friend who if you called them would be like, oh my gosh, let me help you. But when your attachment style kicks in, what remains is the I can't trust anybody but me so I have to deal with this.
0: And we know that these are laid out during infancy and early childhood, very early on, in a way that we call working models. So our working models of our attachment system, for any cognitive behavioral folks in the room, they're kind of similar to schemas. So it's like who we think of as being the people in our lives that we can turn to, or if we have the thought, there's no one I can turn to, I have to rely on myself. That's all related to your attachment system that gets activated during these difficult times. So, our quality of our attachment style is evidenced by how well we deal with relational stressors like separations or emotional needs, how well we negotiate reunions. So, you know, when you have to say goodbye to a friend or loved one, how does that go for you? Do you have a really hard time? Um, do they have a really hard time? Um, do you feel like, it's okay, I'm going to see them next time? Do you avoid separations from loved ones? All right? And then when you do reunify with that person, whether it be in person or over the phone or over text, how does that go? Do you feel like, oh yeah, yay, here's my, here's my person, glad to hear from them? Or is there some animosity or some disappointment? All of that is related to our interactional or attachment style with that individual. And we're going to go through different attachment styles right now. So in a secure attachment, which is what most of us have with most of our significant people in our lives, we feel like generally we can express a range of different affect, including distress, to that person. We also feel like we're able to seek comfort from that person and we're able to receive comfort from that person. So it's a two-way street. I feel like I can ask you for comfort or help and I also am willing to take that from you, those efforts to to comfort me. Um, When there's a frustration or a tension or a difficulty in the relationship, I feel like pretty much we're going to be able to get through it and resolve it. Maybe it'll take us a little while, maybe it'll be a bit bumpy, it might be stressful, but we'll get through it together. And I'm able to engage in other activities or other relationships without feeling too preoccupied or distressed about my relationship with this one individual. This is the attachment style that has the best long-term outcomes for folks. We know that most of our relationships with many people are secure. And there are gradations of secure, of course, right? And generally, we're not looking for perfect in our relationships. We're looking for good enough. So most of the time, greater than 50%, I feel like these things are the case in my relationship with this person. That would be a secure attachment style.
1: And what a secure attachment style allows neurobiologically is for your right orbital frontal lobe to really develop in the way that it should. So that is responsible primarily for the way that we relate to others. So when we talk about cool things like mirror neurons, empathy, things like that, that all happens oversimplified, but generally happens in that region of your brain. So if you don't have this secure attachment, A, that part of your brain doesn't develop as well. What does develop really well is your amygdala, which likes to tell you things are on fire and dangerous all the time. Um, And then also, with a secure attachment, your regulatory system. So your sympathetic and your parasympathetic branches of your nervous system are pretty balanced at that point. They're able to have a set point and talk to each other. So what happens when you don't have that, and these are super dense, I'm not going to go through all of this, um, is that those things generally don't happen so that right orbital frontal cortex doesn't get developed in the right way. It's not as strong, and so it can't override when the amygdala says, hey, we're in danger. Usually if your amygdala says, hey, we're in danger, your frontal lobe is like, yeah, let me check it out, let me get back to you, I think we're okay. And then if not, we'll, we'll do something about it. Um, But if you don't have a secure attachment style, that doesn't happen. So dismissive avoidant, which is also called anxious avoidant, that's usually your caregiver was sort of like up and down, you couldn't predict it very well. So you feel very anxious in your attachments with others. So to Tracy's example of the car starting, that might be the, gosh, I really wish I had someone to call, but what if I call and they think I'm being overly dramatic or I'm being a burden and I can't do that, okay, I'm just going to deal with it myself, right? That's sort of a different flavor. Um, the parasympathetic branch tend to be uh, dominant in here, and the right brain is overregulated. Um, so interaction with others is exhausting. You're always attempting to deregulate or downregulate yourself. So typically, when we see, when I see people who have an anxious-avoidant attachment style, they're often using things like marijuana, um, heroin, things to try to like deregulate and calm stuff down. These are the folks that will come into your office and be like, I have to smoke pot because it's the only thing that mellows me out. Yeah, because it's the only thing that sort of decouples you from your um, sympathetic nervous system, which is like all the time like this. Um, You also have a preoccupied. um, This is usually registered by the fear circuit. So people are often, you feel like people are mad at you. You're, again, a burden, things like that. Um, But you also rely on other people for regulation um, and self-worth often. Fearful avoidant folks kind of has that typically what we think of as hardcore, like abusive environment. Um, The person who was supposed to take care of you was also the person who really, really hurt you. So you had no choice to bond with the thing that was really painful and awful. Um, And then often these folks will carry that into their lives. they tend to use contradictory coping mechanisms. They fear intimacy, but they kind of want it. They don't know how to do it. They have a real low stress tolerance and poor attention. Um, often fearful avoidance, they're not uh, in parasympathetic or sympathetic. They resort to something that we call the dorsal vagal system, which um, is sort of dissociation. So these are the folks who will come in your office and like fully dissociate, because that's what they learned how to do as little kids. Um, And as far as drug users, when I see folks who are uh, fearful avoidant, they tend to use everything because they can't really activate or deactivate themselves. They're kind of all over the place all the time. So they use meth and heroin and this and that and a little bit of that. Um, So that's kind of what that ends up looking like as adults.
0: So we call those three insecure attachments. Um, If you think of secure as being a wide swath, Each of those types of insecure attachment also have gradations or gray areas. Um, Disorganized is the one that we're the most concerned about for the reasons that Jen mentioned. Um, They they hold the greatest risk for a variety of mental health concerns and substance use. Um, In general, it's important to think about attachment as being um, between two people. And so I'm not a securely attached person, but I can be in a securely attached relationship with another. And I can have many securely attached relationships and a few that are more insecure. Um, We tend to see less of the secure with some disorganized. That tends to not be the case. If you you were generally securely attached or had some great examples of secure attachments in your life, you're probably going to avoid getting into a really close relationship with someone who has more of a disorganized attachment style with other people, because it's going to feel crazy-making over a a period of time, and you're going to probably back out of that relationship. So these attachment styles are not diagnoses. Rather, they're ways of thinking about our relationship style with others, and they tend to confer a risk for a broad array of diagnoses and substance use concerns.
1: And I will say that for some people, their secure attachment is their substance, mm-hmm. or their substance. Did I say that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I need more coffee this afternoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, if speaking of secure attachment to substances, mm-hmm. this is mine. People talk about cutting down. I'm not really sure. No, I know. Um, I just don't get it. Maybe yeah. I need an educational campaign. Um, <laughs> fear. Yeah. So if you're used to things being really inconsistent and unpredictable, but every time you get drunk, you feel better. Guess what? You start to securely attach to. That's the thing that meets your need every time you need it. It's always there. It does what it says it's going to do. And so you start to create a relationship with your substance. One of the less helpful things that we do in treatment is tell people how awful and bad and wrong their substance use is without acknowledging that some of them loves it. There's Mm -hmm. part of them that loves using, and that's okay. Let's talk about that. Because it's not about loving the consequence or the destruction that comes with it. It's that every single time my need gets met. Um, Speaking of attachment, the other thing that really happens is um, our ability to regulate. So when we talk about individuals who have substance use disorders or other mental health concerns, really one of the things that we see often is an inability to regulate the system. Um, Within those disorganized um, or insecure attachment styles, what starts to happen is the child, the baby, learns to regulate themselves. So you start to do what's called auto regulation or self soothing. And to some degree, that's really good, right? Like we want little kids to be able to say, I'm okay, this is gonna be fine, um, but to some degree, not to all the time degree, where you have to then only rely on yourself. Um, and this really does kind of come into play. With pregnancy and postpartum back to the slides previous when we were talking about this is an incredibly stressful time so if you don't already have the tools to regulate your system but you know that there's something that does right so the memory the emotional memory in your hippocampus will remind you that what happens when you take a little bit of oxy is that your system does regulate. It's not that conscious, right? It's not like that boom boom boom. It's like a really subtle thing that happens in your brain where your limbic system goes, "I am so stressed. I don't know what to do." And the hippocampus goes, "I do. I remember this thing, right?" And you've got an underregulated regulated orbitofrontal cortex and probably your frontal lobes in general are a little underregulated from use. Suddenly the limbic system and your hippocampus are running the show because you can't regulate yourself. Um, Let's see, what do I want to say? I said a lot of that. Um, So auto-regulation becomes the only way to regulate or intensity seeking. So one of the things that we also sometimes see in, say, um, postpartum depression is really under-regulated. So not being able to get out of bed, not feeling joy, not feeling happy. And what does everyone expect you to feel after you've had a baby? So freaking happy. Guess what not everyone does, right? But you might remember that there is a way. Maybe it's that that Chardonnay that happens at two, and then at ten, and then at like eight in the morning, you're also having a bottle with the baby, right? So that starts to kind of do uh, what you can't do for yourself. I feel like I said that. So yep. Oh. I think we highlighted this, but in securely attached children, the preference becomes to connect with others. In an insecure attachment, the default becomes your auto-regulation. So if you have the attachment pattern from your own upbringing that is insecure, and now you have this baby, rather than having the impetus to bond with the baby, you're going to fall back on what you know to regulate your own system. Right? Your entire body is its own system, and it wants homeostasis. It's going to do what it needs to do to get back there. So if you don't have the pattern of seeking out, you're going to seek in, which includes substance use.
0: So we're going to try to make this um, a little more personalized for all of you, um, to have an understanding of what a client experiencing these sorts of difficulties might present like. So our client for today is a 36-year-old mom of a two-month-old infant. She experienced numerous difficulties becoming pregnant, including several miscarriages, After a difficult labor and delivery, her infant was hospitalized in the NICU and she noticed an increase in her anxiety and depressive symptoms which were already present. She describes herself as traumatized and she's having difficulty sleeping. She's a hospital nurse. She began uh, using her prescribed opiate medication following her, um, her pain following delivery so that she could finally sleep and began skimming off the top at work when she ran out of her supply. So keep our case study in mind as we walk through um, some of these perinatal mental health conditions. Um, When we're talking about postpartum mental health, what immediately comes to mind? Postpartum depression, which my grad student self, would have been blown away that I say postpartum and you say depression, because in the early 2000s, that was not the case. In fact, we say postpartum and people say joy and happiness and wonder and delight, right? And so we've come a long way, baby, since the, to use a cigarette term, since the early 2000s to where we are now. It's fantastic that we know that depression is a prevalent mental health concern in the postpartum. Um, however, there's a lot more that goes on during pregnancy and the postpartum from a mental health perspective. So when I say perinatal, I'm talking about the period through preg- from the start of pregnancy through the postpartum period. Um, what people consider the postpartum really varies, but typically we're talking about anywhere from three months post-delivery to a year post-delivery as postpartum. Um, We have, in the last 20 years, really enhanced to the point of making it pretty much mandatory to screen for perinatal depression, um, especially during the postpartum period. It's pretty much standard practice. Unfortunately, it typically only occurs at a six-week postpartum visit, um, and we know that many depressions actually begin during pregnancy or in the first month postpartum. So we're catching folks rather late. Um, And we're also just screening once, which is tricky in and of itself, right? Um, So excellent that we're doing this, but not sufficient. Um, There's a number of other mental health concerns that increase in prevalence during the perinatal period. In fact, if you can think of a mental health concern, it probably increases in prevalence during pregnancy or in the postpartum period. So know that this is a time that is particularly tricky For folks across the diagnostic spectrum, Um, we don't screen in any standardized manner for other mental health concerns during pregnancy or the postpartum. We use the gold standard EPDS, Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale, which is a 10-item scale of depression. It's an excellent measure. I love it for postpartum depression. But for other mental health concerns, it's literally not tapping any of them. So we are not screening for these other concerns that are increasing in prevalence as well. And that's because there's a lack of standardization or agreement on what we should screen for. Um, It was a really long, hard road to get nurses and physicians to agree to screen for depression in the postpartum, let alone now for us to go back and say, let's screen for everything. I can't even imagine um, what that conversation would be like. So it would be more time-consuming, and of course, we're up against insurance demands, um, 15-minute sessions or appointments. It's getting really tricky. Um, There's also just less academic, bless you, and media attention and awareness around the the full spectrum of mental health concerns that can occur in the perinatal period. So I'm going to go through these really quickly, but I use different animals to kind of help you think about these different concerns during pregnancy and the postpartum. The first one's like a bee sting and that's, we lost our title somehow, Uh but it's postpartum blues. So postpartum blues is not a diagnosis. It's actually more common than it is not to experience a a level of blues in the first week. 50 to 80 percent of new moms with a peak of blues symptoms on day five. And it usually resolves by day 10. So we're not reaching that two-week window that we need for a full diagnosis of depression. But it looks very similar to a depressive episode. It tends to be a little less severe, and again, it's not lasting two weeks. So it's alleviating on its own. So do people need to seek treatment for postpartum blues from a mental health provider? Probably not, right? This is, this is not a diagnosis. Postpartum anxiety is our rabbit here. It is way more common than previously thought and often overlaps with depression. Some rates of comorbidity of depression and anxiety symptoms in the perinatal period are upwards of 66%. So it's more common to see depression with anxiety during this time than it is to see pure depression, and yet we're not screening for it. For obsessive compulsive disorder, we see it in around one in 10 new moms generalized anxiety disorder 17% of new mothers and this fits with the MRI data that we have that shows that during pregnancy and into the postpartum for mothers and also for fathers our brains are rewiring to be looking for causes of threat so it makes sense if you're cave people living in a cave and you're concerned about a saber-toothed tiger coming in and eating your infant that you would want to be watching the environment scanning and be kind of hyperactivated around reasons to be concerned for your baby's safety, right? We live in a slightly more safe environment now, and yet our brains are still scanning for these threats. And if you're someone who's already prone to anxiety or to obsessive compulsive thinking, this can really tip you way over the scales and make what you're experiencing much more severe. Perinatal PTSD is my own personal um, mission to get this information out there because I think we've missed it. And I've been a perinatal mental health clinician from day one of my grad school career and only really started talking about this in the last two years, which is striking to me. So we know that the prevalence depends and varies according to which study you're looking at, but there are some general things to be watching for. If you look across all childbirths, we know that post-traumatic stress occurs in about 4% of deliveries. However, look how the rates increase. When we get into high-risk perinatal circumstances, 15 to 19% are experiencing PTSD. Not acute stress disorder, not um, some trauma symptoms, but actual diagnostic criteria for PTSD. Those are things like pregnancy complications and preterm birth. Then when you get to miscarriages, which occur in around one in five pregnancies. So one in five pregnancies, 25% rate of PTSD following a miscarriage. Ectopic pregnancy, 38%. These are very high prevalence rates for post-traumatic stress. And 39% in cases of infant loss. There is no DSM-5 specifier for PTSD during the perinatal period. We do have a specifier for um, postpartum depression in the DSM, which is great, but again, not enough. So things to be watching out for if you're a mental health clinician or a friend or family member of someone who's pregnant. Um, Prior pregnancy complications are things you'd, you'd want PTSD to be on your radar. Um, vulnerability considerations that are risk factors for a wide variety of things, partner conflict, a previous PTSD diagnosis, and anything around a difficult pregnancy or labor experience are all reasons to kind of have PTSD on your radar for that person. Postpartum psychosis. Oh, I should have mentioned PTSD is our white elephant in the room because we're just not really talking about. I wondered why it was an elephant. People talk about, like, oh, they had a traumatic birth, Mm -hmm. but then we don't think about that as potentially resulting in PTSD, which is why we haven't made that connection. I'm not sure. So that's our white elephant in the room. Um, Postpartum psychosis is our lion. It is um, highly severe, highly concerning. It's very rare so one to two per 1000 childbearing women will experience postpartum psychosis the onset is typically within the first two to four weeks following delivery but can occur as early as 48 to 72 hours after delivery symptoms are very similar to psychoses at other times um, and they are at risk for infanticide and suicide at much higher rates Postpartum depression coming back. So it's our rattlesnake because it's not always uh, deadly, but it can be. The prevalence is around 15%, so one out of every eight new mothers, but that prevalence varies widely according to what group you are studying. Um, The onset, there is a postpartum modifier um, within four weeks of delivery. And uh, typically, anecdotally, you can see a postpartum depression anywhere from three months postpartum to two years after delivery. Depending on whether the individual feels as though their depression started around, like, is related to the childbirth in some way, right? Um, Our higher risk groups, you want to watch out for prior depressions, which is also true for psychosis. You want to watch out for prior psychotic episodes. Um, particularly around a childbirth.
1: That places a person at a much higher risk. And does it seem to increase in intensity with each birth? Is that...
0: I think it varies. Varies? Yeah. But your likelihood of experiencing a depressive episode, the risk increases with each birth, if you've experienced one in the past. Yeah.
1: Good. So... um, so when we think about, you know, our, our moms who are experiencing a mental health um, diagnosis or symptoms as well as or, you know, both substance use disorders, um, often those come together, right? Like that's not news to anybody, mental health diagnoses and substance use. Does anyone not know that those are correlated? Some people are nodding. Okay, they are. Um, So often, what we see is this sort of like parallel process that happens with mom and baby, which then perpetuates all of these things. So mom has an insecure attachment to begin with, right? And then she experiences the stress of pregnancy, postpartum, or that perinatal period. Um, And because of her own internal working models, attachment style, and regulation abilities or inabilities, Um, she may turn to something that we would call auto-regulation or external soothing which is often the substance of choice right so meth opioids whatever it might be Um, and then that substance use or increase in mental health symptoms kicks up so now mom is um, disconnected as well because she's high right really hard to bond with your baby when you're high Um, and so she's not attaching to the baby And at the same time, now baby has insecure attachment or an unhealthy attachment because mom can't attach anymore. Mom's busy trying to return to homeostasis internally and can't do it for the baby, which is really what the baby needs mom to do. Um, And so that stress of the misattunement leads to the baby developing their own auto-regulation strategies and sets them up to be at risk for both mental health um, issues as well as substance use later on down the line. So we really think that these things happen here and then start perpetuating themselves in sort of a generational cycle
0: so we're starting to think within our own department and our own clinical programs which we'll talk a little bit about in a moment that we need to change the way that we screen Um, we need to screen across comorbid substance use and mental health conditions um, our focus is on the perinatal period when we're collaborating together, but really we would recommend doing that across the board. Um, we've started thinking about using a SCID. Um, how many of you are, are familiar with the structured clinical interview for DSM? Anyone? So basically, um, it gives you an option or gives you the opportunity to screen for a variety of mental health difficulties and substance use in a bit of a faster manner because you can screen for the um, main symptoms of each diagnosis, and if the person says no to those, you just move on to the next diagnosis rather than going through all of the symptoms or criteria, which can be useful for helping to screen for a number of disorders at once. We're also focused on using destigmatizing language so that folks are more willing to talk to us about their use of substances, and um, they're more willing to seek treatment from us. If we're not, having horrified faces mm-hmm. and um, asking questions in a closed off manner such as, um, and these are real examples, you're not using substances, are you? Um, uh, what pregnant person is then gonna be brave enough to say, well, actually, well, actually yes, yes I am. Let mm-hmm. me talk to you about my use of meth. Like that's not, the closed ended, um, looking for an answer of no question mm-hmm. method is, is not helpful. Um, you know that using substances harms your baby, right? And so if that's the way that we're screening, um, it's not going to lead to the most open answers or um, to them seeking us as treatment providers. We're also proponents of universal screening, so not assuming that the person sitting across from us is not using substances because they're of higher SES or higher education or because they look like they've got it together. Um, But instead asking these screening questions of everyone because you can't tell by looking Necessarily what folks are doing or not doing So let's return to our case study to talk about a screening process for this mama So things to be thinking about are where might we screen for substance and mental health conditions for the client? She's two months postpartum Um, as a two-month postpartum individual Are you likely to be um, walking into your local mental health clinic for a routine screening or wellness check at that point? Likely, no. You've got other things going on. From a Maslow's hierarchy of needs standpoint, this is not likely the time that you're going to be seeking treatment for yourself or looking for an assessment. Um, So instead, we need to think about partnering with folks who are already seeing postpartum and pregnant individuals. They're their they're midwives, they're doulas, they're nurses, um, childbirth classes. Pediatricians. Pediatricians. Absolutely. NICU staff, right? Folks that might already be interacting with moms and dads. And we're focused on moms in this case study, but know that rates of all of these disorders also increase in fathers during this time period as well. Right. So. Another um, mission of mine is to bring up uh, paternal mental health during pregnancy and the postpartum. So be thinking about when we might screen and how could screening be most effective, right? Is screening most effective when we wait until a six-week postpartum check and we screen once and we only screen for depression using one 10-item tool and we hand it to the person at check-in, at the front desk, usually along with your insurance information and other you know, demographic factors, whatever the clinic is collecting, and we say just make sure you give this to your nurse when you enter the room. You fill out that screening tool, and if you're brave enough to fill it out accurately, you then hand your packet of papers, including your screening tool, to your nurse. What happens to it? You might not know this from being postpartum, but if you filled out other screening tools in a physician's office, what happens to those papers? They go straight in your chart. Guess what? I've had four kids, I've been screened more than four times, Um, I've never had a provider sit down with me and say, let's go over your screening tool for depression. It goes straight in the chart, y'all. So how effective is that as a screening method? So there's a number of ways this might fail, and we need to really revamp our screening process and our ways of partnering with other professionals who are working with perinatal moms and dads. I'm sorry. Oh, you got it. Okay.
1: Um, So, Uh, I don't really know how I want to segue into this. so one (laughs) one of the ways
0: that we're looking at um, partnering to address this and other concerns is by training our own doctoral students in clinical psychology to think about substance use and mental health differently. And one of the ways we're doing that is through our COST program, which was recently funded. We're overjoyed. It's a HRSA grant. And it allows us to specifically train 24 students over three years, eight each year, um, Within GSPP and also in Morgridge College of Education, any Mortgage folks in the room by any chance? We have two students a year from Morgridge in the program, and they are getting um, more intensive class training and field placement training and supervision in exactly this. So in working with comorbid substance use and mental health conditions, Um, One of the areas of specialty is perinatal and infant and early childhood mental health. So they take my classes in addition to Jen's classes on substance use. Or the other area of specialty or focus is our Latinx psychology program because we know that we are underserving the Latinx population. And so being able to screen and treat um, substance use and mental health conditions in our Spanish-speaking and bilingual populations as well. As part of this program, we are also, um, we've developed and are now implementing a telebehavioral health um, program that we can talk a little bit more about um, called ParentLine that is um, specifically designed to meet the screening and assessment and treatment needs of a perinatal population over Zoom technology. So we can reach folks from across the state We have um, two students who are Spanish-speaking who can also reach our Spanish-speaking perinatal population, Um, but it really breaks down a number of barriers to providing care by um, providing the treatment over Zoom. I know we're short on time, so we can skip through these and then if folks have questions about ParentLine, we can go back.
1: Do you wanna, so
0: one, two slides back, maybe your case study? Yep. Um, So we talked a lot about attachment And um, we want to make sure that we leave you with some ideas about attachment-informed treatment options if you're looking to treat perinatal mental health conditions as well as comorbid substance use. So right now, many of our best ways of doing this are providing psychotherapy that's designed for a perinatal population or a um, parent-infant population, but also including um, substance use disorder treatment like MAT, or an integrated care team Mm -hmm. to provide the full needs, the wraparound Mm -hmm. services. But some of the treatments that we know are evidence-based for perinatal mental health concerns and for breaking that cycle of intergenerational insecure attachment are interpersonal psychotherapy, or IPT, which is an individualized approach to mental health treatment for perinatal folks, um, child-parent psychotherapy, which is dyadic with the parent and the infant, and the circle of security approach Um, all three of which have attachment theory as a basis or foundation Um, and then substance use treatment in addition
1: right and if we think of substance use as a disorder of attachment and regulation then those treatments for attachment that have been identified as attachment also then become treatments for that co-occurring substance use disorder as well Um, so once we treat uh, mom or caregivers Insecure attachment style, they can then um, function in a way that they are more regulated and can attach to baby too. Yep.
0: So, um, our overall umbrella program of how we're addressing the cross collaboration between substance use and perinatal mental health is the Expecting Well Being program. Um, so, everything we've been talking about today falls underneath that umbrella. Um, and you can see our call to action. We've been talking through these pieces um, throughout our discussion today, but this is exactly what we're trying to do and we're trying to, in all of our pieces of this program, um, continue to research whether they're effective, um, helpful, and areas that we need to continue to improve across these different treatment approaches. Okay.
1: Do we have any questions? I know, it's like that time in the afternoon. Everyone's so tired. Yeah. Nada? Okay. Thank
0: you for being here. Yeah, thank you. If you enjoy the Emergency Medical Minute, please help us out by rating us on iTunes. For more free medical education, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Make a donation and subscribe to our newsletter at
1: emergencymedicalminute.com.